The following program is intended for mature audiences. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Friday. Happy to have you with us. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. We are also joined at the board most ably. The guy can do a lot in a hurry, and he does a lot to keep us on an even keel. That's bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today? Doing very well, and... Only because I think I deserve that one. Oh, you deserve that every week. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I should have you walk around with me and just start saying that. <laughs> no job shadowing. Oh, yeah. come on. That's for sure. So all is, um, I was about, I like to say all as well because I'm an optimist by nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, I'm a, You're a Virgo. I'm a born again optimist. I'm a Virgo and that says so much. So, uh, but here we are with an opportunity to bring back a lady who has the distinction of being a pundit, a word that I do not take lightly. She is a professor. She is someone who has her her eyes and ears centered on the American political and sociological landscape. And she does all of that with a, a very highbrow approach to her academic life. And she renders it very interesting and in your face in the moment whenever she comes on to Manson Mitchell, Suzanne. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Carol, the monosyllabic Suzanne yeah, Mitchell, right. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Great for showing up. Go Good for showing and, up. <laughs> let's bring her on. Let's bring her on. Uh-huh. Professor Caroline Heldman is a professor at Occidental College. She's also the department chair for critical theory and social justice and the department chair of gender, women, and sexuality studies. She earned her PhD in political science from Rutgers University and specializes in the American presidency and systems of power. She previously taught at Whittier College, Fairfield University, and Rutgers University. Professor Heldman graduated summa cum laude with a degree in business management from Washington State University and has worked extensively in the private sector. There is much more to be said about her, but we want to bring her on air and talk to her for the 19th time on Manson Mitchell. Wow. She is in the stratosphere of guests. We love having her on. Welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, Caroline Heldman. Well, hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Happy Friday when you join us, Dr. Caroline Heldman. Always a thrill to talk to you. And I emphasize the doctor because by way of a soft opening for this interview, hello, right? Hello. <laughs> Get to see you on video too. <laughs> How nice. Why well, you got a face? She's got a face. Betty and I, we look like we're in the dugout, the seventh <laughs> inning stretch. Unbelievable. Well, we know who's into their grooming, but I did want to uh, ask you, Dr. Caroline Heldman, when uh, even before President Joe Biden took the oath of office, apparently there was some problem with references to Dr. Jill Biden, which I didn't know would become a thing. And I'm just wondering, what are the implications of a society in which when you have a PhD and you become the first lady, somehow it's controversial that you keep your title of doctor? Well, as you point out, Gary, this is really something that affects women, right? And it has very deep roots in our perceptions of 
who gets to be a possessor of knowledge in our culture, right? So um, we know that from studies that when you think about who is a possessor of knowledge, um, it's, it's a white man. He is the prototype of a genius. He is um, the uh, archetype of who gets the label genius. So, you know, in, in uh, one particular study of, of who's actually called a genius, um, we associate that idea with white men. So if you're not a white man, um, then you come up against some, some uh, perceptions, some barriers uh, in terms of, of people thinking that you're intelligent. And, you know, I, Suzanne and I could talk probably all day long about the expectations that people have, right, when they see you, um, especially if, like in my profession, uh, my currency is my brain, right? And so um, because of the way I look, I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, I have a certain um, white um, women's performance of femininity. I come up against this all the time. And it's, it's very revealing to me because it, it, sh it shows me uh, when someone is dismissive of me, it shows me what their EQ or their IQ is, right? It becomes this very kind of instant thing where um, I, you know, if somebody dismisses me because of the way I look, it means that it's, it, that they have very traditional ideas of conceptions of knowledge. All of this to say that, that Jill Biden being dismissed wouldn't happen with a man. Um, it also probably wouldn't happen with someone who had a PhD in the natural sciences, because there's also this kind of masculinized, mas masculinized idea about uh, what types of knowledge matter. And so she's got a degree uh, in a social science. And so her knowledge is discounted, her expertise is discounted. And what makes all of this kind of fascinating to me is that uh, the, the word doctor literally means teacher. So uh, medical doctors have taken on that term. And over time, um, you know, they have taken our professional title, which is fine. You know, we're, we're generous, we share. But at the end of the day, the title doctor literally means teacher. I was uh, second in command at a marketing company in Chicago for a few years. And my boss, who started the company, decided that he would call me Mitch. That's with an M. By my last name, he called me Mitch. It was Mitch this, Mitch that, you know, something else. Well, you'll have to see Mitch. She's the vice president. And so when people would come to the office and they would meet me, they would go, oh, you're a woman because they thought Mitch was somehow a man's name. And to find out that the VP was a woman was shocking to a lot of people who came to the office when he didn't tell them that ahead of time. And, uh, and so that's interesting about the, the gender uh, uh, notions. I, I was also that's so shady. You wrote, I'm sorry. You wrote the book, so Rethinking Madam President, Are We Ready for a Woman in the White House? We last talk to you before the election, Caroline. And I wanted to, to say to you, you know, interesting that your book came out years ago. And now we're looking at a woman in the West Wing. I mean, we got close this time. Uh, you think we're going to have a, a woman in the top spot in 2024? You know, I think Joe Biden is very purposely going to open up a back door for Kamala Harris. Um, whether he steps down um, prior to the end of his term, which is what some folks are speculating, um, or whether he just does such a great job of kind of rolling out the red carpet for her uh, to take that mantle. Um, he's made it really clear that he, you know, that he is opening the door for the next generation of leaders. However he does that, I, I think it will be active rather than passive. Um, it's interesting that, you know, 
that we have the most diverse field in U.S. history when it comes to a primary campaign, right? We had five women who were viable candidates. Um, I mean, we could we could argue about some of the viability, <laughs> but um, they're, they're legitimate candidates, right? Um, so in, in the sense that, that they have experience, not necessarily in politics, um, but the field winnows down to the elder white statesman. I, I think that the Democratic primary and the way that that played out, and, and I'm, I'm not, I don't have a horse in the race, but looking at it through a gendered perspective, um, it was just fascinating for me to watch this bounty of uh, female candidates, candidates of color, our first openly LGBTQIA candidate, um, winnow down to the elder white statesman um, who has been, you know, who has dominated the political landscape for the last 245 years. Um, it, it's not surprising when you look at how we think about politics, right? And who who is a safe candidate? Like, who gets to be a safe candidate against Donald Trump? A white man. Why? Because we all know that there's a penalty for candidates of color, and we also know there's a penalty for female candidates. So uh, Kamala Harris, being a, a woman of color, faces intersectional barriers to the presidency. Because when we think about the presidency, we think about that office being occupied by the prototypical citizen. And sort of like being a possessor of knowledge, it's the same two, two axes. Um, when we think about the prototypical citizen, we think about white and we think about male. And this is not just white men who think this. This is a broad, you know, a broad swath of the population thinks of white men as prototypical citizens. So the highest office in the land, of course, is supposed to legitimately be occupied by the prototypical citizen. And the further you get away from that, whether it's whiteness or whether it's being a woman or in the case of Kamala Harris, a, a woman of color, um, you face uh, higher prejudice. Uh, you also face double standards. And so Kamala Harris um, you know, was racialized. She, she faced intersectional racism and sexism during the primary in terms of how she was discussed. Um, she faced the uh, angry black woman stereotype, right? Um, and I think that the best, um, the best way to really unpack this is to think about the vice presidential debate when Kamala Harris is going up against, um, against Vice President Mike Pence. And what did she do the entire time? She smiled. Can you imagine Mike Pence and how weird it would have been had he smiled as much as Kamala Harris smiled in that vice presidential debate. I think that says it all in terms of the double standards for women versus men in politics. And that's that's to say nothing of the fact that fate intervened during that vice presidential debate, because imagine all the preparation. We're really going to nail this, Kamala. I'm going to get this, you know, not entitled to your own facts, you know, like he invented that. And um, all of a sudden, a fly shows up and ruins his, it, it just rained on his parade. All of a sudden- That was he, the best he, meme. Yeah, right? The entire election. <laughs> you, know, you know what else I wanna say about this? And Gary, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you say something because I know you wanna jump in. I, I don't uh, disagree with anything that you said. And you know, from the time that I grew up and all the years that I've lived, you know, I can see that the white men have held the power what is, what is counterbalanced to that and kind of interesting is in the last few decades where on television, especially on commercials, you don't see a really stupid black man. You don't see a really stupid woman necessarily 
But who do they make fun of on all the commercials, Gary? They, they make the I'm white men. They make here. all the white men out oh, to be dumb. You pointed well, this out numerous thank times. Thank you. I get to trot out my baggage in front of Dr. Caroline Heldman here. They're my. Uh, this is the white man's burden I'm carrying in commercial culture. There, I, I think there is an evening of the score that's been going on for at least the last twenty years, and I'm sure longer. Whereby. And I'm healing from this, by the way. I don't have any open wounds right now. But when um, I would see the commercial, there's uh, two business people in an airport. And they're hustling to make their planes. There is the cool, calm, collected female who is totally, she's not only uh, perfectly competent, but perfectly quaffed and composed. And then you have this sloppy, somewhat overweight, middle-aged white male. And he can't, he's, he's just, his briefcase opens up and he's got papers everywhere. And he's stumbling around and looking up in a panic, like you couldn't tie his own shoelaces. And yet they're both on their way to important business meetings. And I'm going, well, I think this is, this is a way of, of leveling the playing field by using creative license because because the people who have been on the outs, who have been subjugated, they get to be on top. They get to be smart. At the expense yeah. of the predominant demographic in this country, at least for material purposes. And that's the 30 to 54 aged white male. Yeah, well, Gary, you're I think you're absolutely right. And as somebody who's, who studies stereotypes and tropes in advertising, right? Um, the trope of the bumbling middle-aged white man comes up a lot. I, and, and anytime you reduce uh, a group to a trope or a stereotype, it's dehumanizing. So even though, you know, white men continue to hold most of the positions of power, right? So we have 20, women are 51% of the population, but 26% but of the Congress and 13% of mayorships and 7% of CEOs. Um, I mean, the gaps are still enormous. Um, I'm not a huge fan of, of punching up or punching down when it comes to identity. And, and one thing I'll complicate about that stereotype is, you know, I, I study six different identities in, in media, right? I, I look at representations of gender, race, sexuality, uh, disability, um, age with a focus on 50 plus and body size with a focus on large body types and also their intersections. And one of the things you mentioned that this, this stereotype inevitably has a larger body type. It's, I, I think sizeism and fat phobia might be the last frontier of accepted, uh, really accepted bias in the US. Uh, the ways in which we depict um, people with large body types um, is so fat phobic and sizes and we make their bodies the butt of a joke. Um, and I would love to see all of that gone, just, just all of it. It, it reinforces our, our worst instincts and biases as humans. I, here, I here. remember as a, a very young girl walking with my mom shopping and um, beholding a woman who had to be every bit of 250 or 300 pounds and my mom saying, don't stare, don't stare. It's not polite to stare. And I was just fascinated by the girth of this elephant sized woman when I was, you know, a young, young girl. And, and so you're right when it's so out of, out of the ordinary. Now, interestingly enough, just as a culture, we've all gained weight here in America. So, you know, I think our average weight is up uh, just generally, we don't, we're not like the thinnest people, you know, on the planet, but 
but you're you're it's interesting that you say that's one of the last phobias left and uh boy then what do we do who will we hate then who will we mock then <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> as humans we are we will find something right and we're so far off from you know i mean implicit bias as well as explicit bias it's yeah. it's baked into our culture before we get into a more partisan kind of dialogue. And I can't wait to do that, Caroline, because I, I love you for your insights and for your intellect and the way you just spell it out for us in a way that everybody finds accessible. Here's one that is not only accessible, it's unavoidable, really. And that is the double span, uh, standard. That term double standard is always, and also sexism has shown up in this conversation early on. I wanted to just roll out the red carpet for you so that you can have at this, Caroline. In the case of individual one, the 45th president was regarded as an alpha male. Now there's a man, he's a leader. And of course he had an eye for the ladies and at least some of them had an eye for him there. And he was quite the player. He actually, in an interview many years ago, told Howard Stern that his personal Vietnam was avoiding STDs in the jungle of the New York high-end sex uh, social circles in which he traveled, where, you know, there were nights where he would have his pick of the ladies. Other times he would pursue them hotly. However, that turned out that was his Vietnam, the STDs. By the same token, the current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, has been addressed in terms of actually being a woman of loose morals. And it's the conservatives who were just uh, feverishly seeking the reelection, the anointing of Donald Trump, who now turned to Kamala Harris and they call her the W word. They're out in the streets. I believe it was Louisville, Kentucky, and they're marching in the streets. Kamala Harris is, uh, and I don't even like to say the word, and I'm going, wow, where is the disconnect in people's minds that this could even happen in the United States of America in the 21st century? Well, there, there it is. You've said the mouthful, right? That um, it, it is such an obvious double standard. And I think it's, it's peculiar to note that, or maybe it's normal to note that uh, it, it's being targeted toward women of color. And I don't, it's not just Kamala Harris, right? So you saw a couple of days ago, the confirmation hearing uh, for uh, Neera Tandon, where she used Twitter in a way that I would say is, is much softer than Donald Trump, right? So she calls Mitch McConnell Voldemort, and she refers to, uh, you know, she says of Ted Cruz that, you know, a vampire has more heart than Ted Cruz. So she masters Twitter. She gets all these followers, right? Uh, she gets this platform. She has, you know, decades of experience in public service, but she does a, a lot of the cheeky cheeky content on Twitter that um, Donald Trump does, except I would, I would again reiterate, like his was much further along the, the spectrum of being bullying and, and, and condescending and degrading. Um, and yet you have these, you know, the, no, apparently no shame, no hypocrisy, uh, just doesn't get into their pores, these senators calling her out. Um, as though, you know, she's not allowed to do a fraction of what Donald Trump did um, and get away with it. I mean, it, it, it's remarkable to me. And of course, Donald Trump, beyond, you know, his, I don't really care about his sex life. What I care about is his sexual violence, right? The 23 very serious allegations of sexual violence um, that folks have lobbied. And, and in fact, that he, he admitted to sexual assault on tape. And yet, 
um, you know, we when in the 2016 election, um, more people were concerned about Hillary Clinton's um, about Bill Clinton's uh, allegations of sexual violence than uh, Donald Trump's actual direct candidate allegations of sexual right. violence, right? The double yeah. standard of, of holding uh, Hillary Clinton responsible for her husband's behavior at a greater extent than we hold Donald Trump responsible for his sexual, well, his predatory sexual behavior. Um, it, it is quite remarkable when you, as you did, line them up, Gary, right side by side. And Kamala Harris is facing some really old tropes uh, that we have about black women that show up a lot in media, but also just in our culture more broadly. And they come from the time of slavery. So you've got the mammy stereotype, which is we feel very comfortable with black women who are large and carrying, you know, typically carrying back in the day for white, white children. Um, they are in a position of servitude. Um, so that's a character, uh, a, a kind of servile uh, character that we're comfortable with with black women. And then the other two are the, the Jezebel stereotype uh, and the Sapphire stereotype. And the Jezebel stereotype is a, uh, essentially comes from the time of slavery where um, the idea was that, oh, black women are so sexually, uh, you know, uh, uh, voracious that they can't be raped, right? So if a white man had sex or a slave master um, had sex with a woman he was enslaving, she made him do it, right? He couldn't, he couldn't help it because she's so sexually loose and sexually um, manipulative. So the Jezebel stereotype is very much, you know, the, the horror word you didn't want to say. That's, that's tapping into a stereotype that has been with us for two centuries. And the angry black woman stereotype taps into this historic, what we call the sapphire stereotype, which is this angry black woman who is irrational. And so her anger is always illegitimate. So you see Kamala Harris so carefully navigating all of these historic, you know, these long-standing stereotypes that have been with us since slavery. And while they've evolved over time, they still have the same effect of pigeonholing and dehumanizing women of color. You know, I wanted, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and this seems like it might be the, the right time to do that, you're, you have specialized in the American presidency and systems of power. And, I, and we're getting into this whole idea of, you know, what has happened in America over the last 250 or so years. Have you ever looked at, and are you familiar with, if politics have at any point in time in our history been considered ethical? It, you know, if it, can you say, well, during this person's presidency, they operated in a very ethical manner? Because uh, first of all, I'd like to know when. And since we've all been victims of what looks like uh, people acting not ethically all over the place, do you think it's possible to ever return to or go to the first time to a much more ethical culture? Wow, what a question, Suzanne. Um, so I, I actually haven't thought about the presidency in these terms, but of course, having studied it, I would say that I wouldn't, I think the office itself um, and what it takes to get there uh, by definition yes. means that you're, you're going to be compromising quite a bit. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, it's sort of like Plato has this idea, right, that you don't, uh, that the best people for politics are the people who don't want to be there. Um, and, uh, you know, 
he obviously says it in a much more uh, elegant way, but people who, who want power are not the ones who should hold it. Um, I couldn't subscribe to that oh. more. I will say that um, it's been really instructive for me to study the presidency because it's helped me define how little I am interested in power um, because it really, and, you know, the cliche that uh, power is corrupting, right? Um, right? I would say that the, I think the most ethical president we've ever had would be Jimmy Carter. There have been mm. many presidents who mm -hmm. use their power in good ways. I would say, you know, that I think Joe Biden is using his power right now for the benefit of others. I think that George W. Bush thought he was doing that. I would say that I, a lot of his policies maybe benefited the U.S., but but the 600,000 dead Iraqi civilians, um, I, you know, I, I think he, and I, I don't think anybody is the villain in their own story. So I think he thought he was trying to do some, some good things, um, but had some people around him who um, were definitely prioritizing profits over people. Um, but Jimmy Carter, I think his lack of success in the White House tells you everything you need to know. Why was that man, you know, I mean, they, we can look at the complexity of his presidency and there are many factors that caused it to be a one-term presidency. But I, I think that the really pivotal moment, which tells us a lot about our country, um, is his Malay speech in which he told us the truth about who we are and what we were doing, right? He said, look, you have become, and he never used the term Malays, but he said, look, Americans, uh, you have become very consumer oriented, very self-focused. You consume a lot of products. We're gonna have to tighten the belt here. We're gonna have to come together as a society and think about the community rather than ourselves. And how did the American public respond? Um, by and large, pundits were critical of it. Uh, Americans didn't like being told they were gonna have to think about the community instead of themselves. Um, you know, and he was a one-term president. Again, more factors than that playing into this for any historians or political scientists who are listening, they're probably, you know, pulling out their hair and saying, that's too much of a simplification. But to get to your question, Suzanne, I, I think he exemplified um, everything that, that presidents can't be, which are, you know, for one, one major part is uh, telling the American public the truth about itself. Yeah, people don't want to hear the truth, that's for sure. And, and we spend a lot of time lying. And, you know, I think that that kind of crescendoed under, under uh, President Trump when he's got, you know, 20, 30,000 lies that they've, you know, managed to, to uh, uh, list, you know, by date and topic. I mean, it, it's just incredible that you could spend that much time lying and still be in office. And still be the most popular member of your party. And, yeah. and still be, you know, considering a run in 2024 and having inspired a violent insurrection, and yet you're still a viable candidate for, for public office. I mean, well, it's- Well, it yeah. says a lot about the culture though, doesn't it, Caroline? I mean, a lot more, you know, he isn't an aberration. He, he's, he is the example. He is what we deserve to, oh to my get God. <laughs> if, if we're not involved in paying attention and and in the game ourselves, if we're just let, letting things happen, that's what happens. You're Wasn't absolutely it Franklin right. that said that, that America gets the leadership it deserves? Yep, absolutely. Um, I think at this point, uh, there has been a lot of rigging of the system in terms of voter ID laws and yes. in terms of gerrymandering. So the rules have been stacked against the public's voice actually being the thing that drives Yep. Um, elections the way that it it should and, and they're not you know they're not fair um but yeah you're absolutely right one in three americans 
um, still continues to support Donald Trump. And I don't say this from a partisan perspective, but uh, how? How? I mean, this is someone who has posed, a, this is a president who's posed a greater threat to our democracy than any president. Um, he, if you look at what he did with the violent insurrection of January 6th, we all watched it happen. And yet people, act, you know, people are more willing to believe the lie than they are to believe their eyes. So as soon as he looked at polls six months out from the election showing that he had a very good shot of losing the election, despite all the, the rules that you know, benefit Republicans uh, at the state level um, for, this, for, for elections, um, he looked at that and, and started a rhetorical campaign. So the big lies actually started, the big lie that the election mm -hmm. was rigged, right? That it yep. was fraudulent. Um, that big lie started six months before the election, before yep. any yep. vote was cast. Absolutely. So he ran a rhetorical campaign. And mm -hmm. as soon as the election happened, um, he then reiterated the big lie. He then raised um, over $100 million in order to amplify the big lie. And then as it became, you know, then he used the courts uh, to legitimize the big lie. So even though over 60 cases were just thrown out or laughed out of court or, or judges that he appointed were angered at his team because you know you can't actually lie in a court of law, but they use the legal system to give his the big lie a veneer of, um, of legitimacy. And then when everything else fails, um, he, his, his team, you know, his, his uh, people organize a rally, schedule it to end right as the certification is beginning. So people tend to look at, at his incitement of this as just being, you know, the couple of hours before the actual attack. Nah, he planned it, he, he, he timed it. He yeah. asked people to go to DC and then his rhetoric inspired them. But, but even at that point, it, it was already, like he'd already set it up. So even if he said nothing that day, he had already set this up to happen. And so the fact that we can't look at what happened before our very eyes for you know, eight months, the fact that we can't believe our eyes, but rather we believe the big lie really speaks to what you all said, right? About we, we get the leadership, we get the country we deserve. Mm. And as we get ready to go to break, I'll just add this little coda to uh, this segment of our conversation. I personally believe that historians, probably in the near future, but over time, will uncover the ghastly extent to which Stephen Miller actually was in strategically on the inside, as though he hadn't done enough damage already, will be seen as having had far more influence on Donald Trump than was commonly discussed during those four years. He knew how to pour the hot wax in Donald's ear. That's for sure. And I think that history is going to show that. And um, when I make comparisons, and not, not the general physical ones, which just seem kind of bizarre to me. I almost want to say it's deliberate. But when I, I look at Stephen Miller and I think of Joseph Goebbels, it isn't for appearances sake alone. And I think we're going to find that out. History will show. Just my opinion. We need to take a break, Suzanne. And yes. then we'll get into some of the partisan stuff. As I said, when I put out the social media for Dr. Caroline Heldman's appearance today, I said, there's so much to unpack and deconstruct. All we can do is simply ask you to tune in and hang on. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. 
Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. We are the physicians, the nurses, the hospital and health system leaders. All we ask of you is to take three simple steps proven to stop the spread of COVID. Wear a cloth face mask, maintain social distance, and wash your hands. Scientific evidence must shape our decisions, dictate our actions, and protect our health. We are not powerless. Together, we will defeat COVID. This has been a message from the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, and the American Nurses Association. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Caroline Haldman back to make sense of a welter of issues facing America during these turbulent times. On Saturday, Elizabeth Wilson joins us for a round of metaphysical Q&A. When all of this is over, what do you plan to do with your life? Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Bored with the other stations, hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this hour. She's so special. This is her 19th appearance with us in the 14 years that Gary and I have been on air. And I'm talking about Professor Caroline Haldman. We are talking about... um, American presidency, systems of power, uh, women in politics and all kinds of good stuff. But before I get to my next question, Caroline, if people would like to know more about you, your books, uh, website, how is it that they can uh, find more about you and get connected? Well, thank you for asking, Suzanne. Uh, My website is drcarolineheldman.com and I'm Caroline Heldman on all the social media channels. Um, I have TikTok, I'm not really on there, but Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, because uh, I've been on there long enough to have my own name. (laughs) (laughs) It is great. It is great. Do you have someplace to go? Because I have a question. No, I'm doing this show. (laughs) Oh, all right. Um, (laughs) I do have, I wanted to just, you know, insinuate a subject here for Dr. Heldman. Way back when, God, when when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, when they were in the news every day, there was a group of an august group of foreign policy experts and experienced diplomats. James Baker was part of this. Uh, Former Senator Alan Simpson was part of this. They were called the Iraq Study Group. They amassed information, synthesized it, and came up with unanimous conclusions about how we could find a peaceful solution and cut down on the 
number of deaths, both of Iraqis, but especially of American servicemen and women during that conflict. And when they published their report, they were very high-minded in their intentions, and they thought they were making a genuine contribution to what was an international conversation. One man, one man sank it by calling it, by calling them the Iraq Surrender Group. And when I think of words like hostile, racist, misogynistic, homophobic, uh, hyper-partisan, racist, did I get to racist? Yeah. Bigoted, did I mention bombastic? That one man passed away. And all of these words that I'm using seem like an epitaph now, Caroline. What is your take on the death of Rush Limbaugh? Well, I think the popularity of Rush Limbaugh tells us a lot about our culture. Uh, this is a man who was the original right-wing shock jock, right? He, uh, he popularized hate and bigotry, brought it out into the open and was celebrated for that. And without Rush Limbaugh, I don't think we would have had Fox News. I mean, he was essentially a market test case for Fox News. Um, without Rush Limbaugh, I don't think we would have had the ascension of Donald Trump. Um, and so, you know, this idea that you don't speak ill of the dead, um, he was a figure who, uh, his life was uh, a negative mark on society. He made the world worse. He did. He um, talked about sending, uh, when, when Justice Sotomayor was going through her confirmation, the first Latinx woman to the Supreme Court, he joked about sending her and her friends some vacuums. So playing upon the stereotype of Lat Latinx uh, women being maids. I mean, just open degradation. He called, um, he called Sandra Fluck, uh, the young Georgetown Law School student who was appearing before Congress to talk about the availability of birth control. Um, he called her a slut. Um, he said that, you know, called, said that she was a sex worker. Why? Because she was advocating for uh, women uh, to have birth control covered in their health insurance. I mean, this is a man who, who made vitriol um, popular. And so I, I think um, his life really tells us a lot about who who's, we are as a country, that we would not only tolerate this, but we would celebrate it. And he would get a medal of honor from a president. I mean, it's just, it's sort of absurd um, what he reveals about our culture. At one time, he had over 20 million faithful listeners. That's a big chunk of the electorate. It is, and his listeners were older white men who were um, afraid of the shifting social order. And, you know, in, in an effort to practice radical empathy, um, I understand the, the fear that comes with unearned privilege and being at the top of a social heap, a social hierarchy, and then having that hierarchy shifted as women and people of color and women of color make, make progress in society. And as they, as our society starts to get more democratic and fairer, because it hasn't been fair for 250 years. It's, it's been a patriarchy where we value men and what they do more than women. It's been a, you know, white supremacy uh, society where we value white people and what they do more than people of color. So as those um, power structures shift, toward equality, toward democracy, 
um, it's really scary for folks who are born into the world believing that they should be in a certain social place. Um, so I get it. I get why they might gravitate toward a Rush Limbaugh who makes them feel better about the shifting social order. I get why they might shift toward and, and be enamored by Donald Trump who makes them feel better. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if feeling better is predicated upon the degradation of others, um, they might want to reconsider, you know, their, their place in society. You know, one of the things, I heard you say things is getting fairer. Now that gives me just a, a little bit of hope there. So I would like to get your, your take on that. I also wanted to uh, throw in here that if white men are at the top of the power structure, it would seem to me that the bottom would be black women. And I, I just, I applaud what appears to be black woman, black women uh, exercising their power in things like the, the uh, Georgia elections and uh, places where that has gone on. Um, the original um, uh, uh, election of Doug Jones uh, is that the right one, Doug Jones? And, and the senator from Alabama. Right. And so when I think of how uh, black women have said, well, you know, let, let us exercise our, our the power that we have, it seems as though if things are going to get fairer and they're going to get better, it may be that it is predicated upon the power of the least powerful group in our society. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it, Suzanne. Um, and uh, yeah, two thoughts come to mind. One, black women are definitely um, the, when black women have achieved a place in society that we can say is equal and fair, then everyone else will have as well. You're right. Um, yeah. I think that's a great way of, of you know looking at the status of society is to look at the status of black women. Um, there's also this interesting thing that happens with a lot of uh, people who are at the top of the social hierarchy, because classism is still a, very much a thing. You have a lot of poor white people or, or even working class white people who we call it the paradox of privilege. They don't feel privileged. Um, and so as they're working their way through the world, they're still facing a lot of, of the um, not outright discrimination, but they're facing uh, what happens when you when you give your democracy over to corporations, right? They're facing the pinch of not being able to have access to education, not being able to have access to a living wage. And so um, it feels like there isn't privilege involved in that. And, and in some sense, they are um, facing the discrimination. Uh, they're experiencing the discrimination of a, of a corporate democracy, right? A corporate republic that's been captured by by corporate interests over, over citizens' interests. But the way in which I would describe it for a, for a white person who might be listening and saying, wait a minute, I don't, I don't feel like I have privilege. Um, your privilege comes in the form that, that your uh, skin isn't the basis for being followed around in a store. Your skin tone uh, doesn't mean that when somebody meets you, they immediately think that you're, you're less intelligent 
than you are. Your skin isn't the reason that you're, your skin tone is not the reason that you're not going to get a job. Um, and it also is, it's just a series of, you know, microaggressions and sometimes macroaggressions that build up that over the course, now new research is coming out over the course of a black person's lifetime, they actually have much higher, they're, they're, they live less healthy, shorter lives because of the stress of having that just constant microaggressions and sometimes very overt macroaggressions. Um, but but we, are, we are making progress, right? We can look at the numbers. Um, but I will say that you know, the, the current rate of progress for women, for example, it's gonna take 203 years for us to achieve parity in politics at this pace. Um, and one last thing I would say about you know, Stacey Abrams, I think that the fact that, that Stacey Abrams had great success in electing, uh, using her skills to elect white people in Georgia, but she herself couldn't get elected, tells you quite a bit about the state of black women, that we are willing to celebrate their work, their extraordinary work, but at the end of the day, she was still denied that opportunity. And that had something to do with her, her intersectional positionality as a black woman. Hmm. There is a great heartache when you stand back and look at the political landscape of America in 2021. And a that was brought home to me in the last 24 hours, once again, in a fresh way, by listening to television reports, I don't go to the network where this interview happened, I, I won't, but the news report came out that Mitch McConnell, minority leader, Senator Mitch McConnell, who held Donald Trump morally culpable for the insurrection of January 6, even though he voted to acquit him in the Senate trial, nevertheless made it clear that this would not have happened without Donald Trump, without his instigation. Okay. Then he's asked by a Fox News interviewer just last night, will you support Donald Trump if he runs for president in 2024, if he is the nominee? And Mitch McConnell wasted no time in saying absolutely he would support him as the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. So how far have we gotten with any sort of reckoning over the events of the last four years, certainly, but over the last six to seven weeks, it's been right in our faces. And yet you have somebody with the power of a Mitch McConnell saying, of course, I'll be for him if he runs again. Well, to practice radical empathy for all the Republicans who are terrified of Trump. Um, I would say Mitch McConnell is just making a calculated decision about power. He's had about a 20 point drop in favorability ratings because he went pretty hard after Donald Trump, after the violent insurrection of January 6th. And uh, he knows that he's gonna be paying a political cost for that. Um, he might pay a political cost just in terms of not supporting him, but I think what they're more afraid of is that Donald Trump will come after them, even though he doesn't have Twitter, he's got some other you know access to other channels, media, um, Folks in the Republican Party who want nothing to do with Donald Trump are still terrified of him um, because he, you know, as you saw with the golden calf yesterday that was being uh, dragged through uh, CPAC, uh, this golden statue of Donald Trump, he has really achieved cult-like status with enough followers that almost anywhere in a red district in the U.S., um, he has the power to shift elections. And so, um, 
I feel for these Republicans. I know why they can't speak out. I know why, you know, Liz Cheney is probably not going to be reelected because she's telling the truth that the party actually doesn't want it to just be about Donald Trump. Um, he is he destroyed he has destroyed their party in the last four years. Right. They are facing more of a, a schism in, within a political party than we've seen in, in for any political party in the modern media age. Um, he may be a bringing us into what we call, you know, political scientists to bore everyone to tears called party alignment, uh, right? A, part of, a party realignment where um, we're going to see a new party system form. And in fact, if you look at polls, 46% of Republicans say that they would join the Donald Trump party if he splintered off. So um, he's a pretty big threat to the party, but he's also very much a threat to individuals who don't support him. And we know, um, we know he keeps a revenge list. We know that he does that. Is the Republican Party likely to go away, at least under the name of Republican Party, much the way the Federalists did? You know, I think that they will weather this. I think that I think Donald Trump will be a presence probably for another five, six years. Um, but I do think his influence is waning. So even though he's still the most popular member of the party, and he has lost the party, the, the election, like that's all on him. That's all on his COVID response, right? It's all on his right. behavior, um, which doesn't play well with centrists. Um, even though he has lost the halls of power and all the branches have gone, uh, swung the other way. Um, I think the, the Republican Party will have a longstanding influence because they they pack the court. They've got a super majority on the one branch of government that's going to last for 30 years. I don't think he's going to get reelected. You know, I think that he's going to be so inundated with uh, lawsuits and everything else. He's going to be in court, you know, for the next 10 or 15 years. I just don't I just don't see him coming back politically. Maybe I'm a starry eyed dreamer, but I'm not sure that he's going to be able to run. I've been saying to anybody who discusses it with me for months now, I don't think Donald Trump's going to go to prison, per se. You're not going to put an orange jumpsuit on that. That's a, a feverish fantasy that that might happen. Justice might look like he's under home confinement. His freedom is abridged, is restricted to such an extent that he can't run for president. But wherever he's going to be, he's going to have Secret Service people around him and, and the agents of justice, particularly when you look at the Southern District of New York and their court system. So I'm not sure that he's going to be able to run, but I do know that he's the type of man who would gladly groom a dynastic party where his son, his daughter could vie for who's going to carry the mantle of Donald Trump in the future. We're not rid of these folks by any means. I think you're right. I think his kids are not as talented as he is when it comes to connecting with the base, but you're you're right that he'll groom them and maybe a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Matt Getz or, you know, one of his his protégés or, or his wannabe protégés or even a Josh Hawley. I'm, in fact, I would say I'm more concerned about a Josh Hawley who, um, you know, he's like the, the tidy, uh, professional looking um, brand of Donald Trump. But but Gary, I think you're absolutely right that he is in trouble. He's, I think he's in trouble because his eight years of his uh, financial documents and tax returns were just turned over to uh, the Manhattan DA. Um, and if you recall, this investigation started with the Michael Cohen, his fixers, hush uh, payments yeah. to you know women to keep them quiet about extramarital yeah. affairs. And 
quickly ballooned into looking at, and who knows what they're going to find, but we know that they're looking at insurance documents, mortgage documents, um, wire fraud. I mean, there are all sorts of things that they could be investigating. And so um, I think we're going to see the Southern District uh, in New York. I think we're also going to see maybe even Georgia jump in the fray. Um, if he hasn't done anything wrong, he has nothing to be worried about. But I'm concerned also, too, about his inaugural committee investigation uh, that's underway in D.C. in a D.C. court where, you know, Donald Trump Jr. gets trotted out and they say, look, we actually have more questions and now more avenues of investigation after talking with Donald Trump Jr. Um, if he hasn't done anything wrong, he has nothing to be worried about. But my thought would be that where there's this much smoke, there's probably quite a bit of fire. I have um, something on my mind here that that's been bugging me and we've only got like three minutes left, but when is history going to be written and when is it going to be written the most accurately? We've had people coming out with all kinds of uh, tell-all books here in the last year or two, and, and, and there will be some kind of historical representation for what has occurred, but when does enough, when do enough, when does enough information come out? to actually make a, a more accurate reporting of what occurred? Great what questions. Take? 10 yeah. years, 20. Hey, I got good questions today, Caroline. <laughs> you do. Yes, I'm you thinking. do. I, I, I'm, I'm going to talk to a professor. I'm going to ask good questions. I mean, is it 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? From what you've uh, read about presidencies, when can you get a, a kind of a clear picture? You know, I'm thinking about my own journey and, and looking at presidential archives, and I would say we're about 50 years out. Okay. Um, and and will we know a lot in the next 10 years? Yes. I think we'll know if, especially if the Democrats hold the White House um, for another four years, I think the investigations will uncover a lot. I think a lot of what happened in the Trump White House requires investigations because they they bent the rules in so many ways and covered things up, right? They, so they bent the, the standard operating procedure. So, so the documents we thought we would have are simply not there, right? So many of them, um, they just, they're not going to be available. And so it requires investigations to know what actually happened. Um, but yeah, I would say a good historical timeline is about 50 years to truly know all the ins and outs. So we now have a really good sense of what happened in the Nixon White House. Very good. I'll, I'll be looking at it from the other side of the veil. <laughs> yes, that's, well, we'll pay attention. We're going to live as, forever. There you go. We'll pay attention as long as we can. And I'm, I'm optimistic uh, to go back to COVID for just a moment. This Johnson and Johnson, I mean, this is just my personal preference, but if I can have a one and done shot, I'm going to go for it. And we're lucky living here in Florida because those 65 and older are allowed access to it. I wish it were true that anyone anywhere, kind of a free market approach would have access to this vaccine and it hasn't been well coordinated. But it, I'm just hopeful that listening to science, letting them have their way and particularly under this new administration will get us to that goal of, of getting past COVID a lot sooner than would have been the case otherwise. I'll just say I want the Moderna vaccine. I want the Dolly Parton vaccine. There you go. <laughs> and that's the great thing about the American economy. You can have whichever one you want. There, that's, that's the good thing about competition. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Caroline Heldman, for joining us once again. Can't wait for visit number 20. Woohoo! Thank you both. It's just so wonderful to, to speak with you.
Okay, thank you. And stay tuned for the Christine Up Church Show. The Church of Up. Church of Up. Followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Today's guest, Anson Williams. We're going to visit with Potsy Weber. Have a great weekend and stay safe, everyone.